Well, with last Sunday being the first Sunday of Advent, it was fitting that last week's sermon really was an Advent message. Our passage in Philippians explicitly called us to consider both of the Advents of the Lord Jesus Christ. His first coming, born as a babe in Bethlehem, and his second coming, when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. This week's sermon will likewise be an Advent message as Paul, in the next few verses, continues to reflect upon the humble obedience of Christ in his first Advent and on what that means for us as we await his second. But what does it look like to wait for the return of Christ? Certainly, it includes having already bent the knee to Jesus and confessed him to be your Lord, just that you are genuinely eager for his return, but What are the necessary implications of that kind of submission? What does it look like for Christ to be your Lord as you wait for him to return? I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. You can find it on page 197 in the second half of the Pew Bible. Again, the Apostle Paul is writing from a prison in Rome to the church that he planted in Philippi about 10 to 12 years earlier. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Hear the word of the Lord to you. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word to us. By the Holy Spirit, apply your word to our hearts that we may work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. Bless the preaching of your word. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. We notice that verse 12 begins with the word, therefore. And one of the rules, the first rules of Bible study is that when you encounter that word, therefore, you must ask yourself what the therefore is there for. An implication is being drawn from the preceding verses, right? So what's the connection? Well, Paul is saying that in light of Christ's extreme act of humble obedience to the Father in his first advent, and in light of his final vindication when he comes to judge all the earth in his second advent, We who now confess that He is Lord must now obey Him as Lord. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. It's a weighty, sober command, but it's given in love. Paul earnestly desires their good, their their spiritual well-being, and their joy. And so he addresses them as my beloved, and he encourages them by acknowledging their past obedience when he was present with them, having brought them the gospel such that they became the first church on the European continent. Now, even more so in his absence, he calls them to obey. Paul is hoping for the opposite 
of the ministry of Moses. In Moses' final words to the Israelites who first entered into the promised land, Moses said this in Deuteronomy 31, I know how rebellious and stubborn you are. Behold, even today, while I am yet alive with you, you have been rebellious against the Lord. How much more after my death? For I know that after my death, you will surely act corruptly and turn aside from the way that I have commanded you. And so they did. A very different note is being struck in this passage to the Philippians. Paul is calling the Philippians and he's calling us to be different from the Israelites and to instead work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, it's obvious that he's not saying that we are to earn our eternal salvation through obedience, for as elsewhere in Paul's writings, this letter clearly teaches that we are saved by grace alone, on the merits of Christ alone, and through faith alone. For in chapter 3, he writes about being in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul is not instructing us to seek to earn our salvation, but to labor to bring about the proper fruit of our already granted salvation. What he referred to in the first chapter as the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. Suppose that you've never had a bicycle. And you've always wanted one, so your father gives you one for Christmas. A few weeks go by, and it just sits there in the corner of your room, never ridden. Your father comes in and says, aren't you excited about the gift that I gave you? Oh, yes, father. It's what I've always wanted. I'm so glad to have it. Then why aren't you riding it? Oh, well, that seems like a lot of work. I don't have the necessary muscles and skill to do it well. I'd probably just fall off and hurt myself. No, I'll just enjoy being able to call it mine as it sits there unused. That's silly, right? To enjoy the gift, you have to put it to work. You have to roll up your sleeves and strain your muscles and bruise those knees and scrape those elbows. You have to work at it. Yeah, it might hurt a little, but but the happiness of owning the bike does not compare to the joy of riding the bike. There's the analogy of newborn life. Imagine A tiny infant that that never tries to roll over as it grows. It never tries to crawl. It never tries to walk. That's just too much work, it thinks. I don't have the necessary muscles and skill to do it well. I'd probably just hurt myself anyway. No, I'll just lay here on my back and enjoy having a body as it lays here unused. No, to enjoy the gift of life in a body, you have to put it to work. You have to work out that body and that life. So too with the gift of our salvation which here, that word salvation, refers to to everything associated with the the spiritual life that we've been given, and especially to our our sanctification, our our being changed to be more like the image of Christ, our growth in godliness. We have to roll up our sleeves, strain our muscles, experience some bumps and bruises along the way as we work at obedience and spiritual growth, as we strain to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, as he said in verse 3. Nothing out of rivalry or or pride. Nothing out of strife or division. Nothing with grumbling or disputing, as he says in verse 14. And that's a pickup again in chapter 4 as he speaks to two specific women in the church. To work out our own salvation is to diligently work to cultivate, diligently work to cultivate the others-oriented, sacrificial mindset of Christ. The mindset 
of an obedient servant. And to do so with fear and trembling, we're told. That is, as one who will have to give an account for the life that has been entrusted to you. Getting back to the the Israelites who were freed from captivity in Egypt, there were a, a few moments when that first generation of Israelites trembled in fear before God. A couple of months into their journey toward the promised land, they arrived at Mount Sinai, and God visibly descended atop the mountain, and quote, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking and shaking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off. And Moses had to explain to them in the next verse that they had the wrong kind of fear. For God had not delivered them and drawn near to them in order to kill them. He had delivered them and drawn near to them in order to instill a different kind of fear. The kind that compels you not to flee from God, but to bow down before Him in awe and worship, resolving to fight sin and to live for Him. That kind of fear. Sadly, whatever fear the Israelites had quickly vanished, and they persisted in disobedience for generation after generation. And so the prophets, beginning with Moses, foretold of a day when all who truly belonged to God would have the right kind of fear instilled in them. This is the promise of the new covenant that has now been inaugurated by the Lord Jesus Christ. As God foretold in Jeremiah 32, I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. Christians are those who have been delivered, not just from the penalty that their sins deserve, but from the power of sin in their hearts. Delivered from their indifference toward God. Delivered from their unfounded presumptuousness regarding their right standing with God. Delivered from a cavalier dismissive attitude towards sin. And filled instead with awe and reverence toward God. And rather than trembling in fear of judgment, we tremble in awe of the immensity of God's holiness and grace. And we tremble at the thought of failing to render unto Him the worship that He is due. We bemoan and we fight against the sin that hinders our service of Him, for He is worthy of such a fight. And this this fear and trembling with which we work out our own salvation, it prevents us not only from boasting in our own good deeds or boasting in our growth and godliness, it prevents us from trying to serve God to glorify Him in our own strength. Verse 13, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. The first verse of the Bible that that really hit me and stuck with me after I was first converted and began to trust in Jesus at the age of 13, it was John 15, 5. I remember having that reference engraved on the front of the first Bible that I actually began to read. Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. I'm still amazed so many years later that through the presence of the Holy Spirit, Jesus can be described as being in us. And any good that we do, any fruit that we bear, must be attributed to God at work in us, motivating us as he changes us from the inside out, transforming our desires such that we increasingly desire to please him, 
emboldening us, strengthening us, equipping us to effectively serve him. Again, this is precisely what was promised in the Old Testament regarding life under the new covenant. In Jeremiah 31, God said of those living under the new covenant, I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. In Ezekiel 36, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and will cause you to be careful to obey my rules. It's the work of the Holy Spirit within us to progressively, over time, make us more holy. That's why he's called the Holy Spirit. And that's why we are called saints, which just means holy ones. God is at work within us to will and to work for his good pleasure. We are being commanded to work out what God works in. Get on the bike and ride. Enjoy the spiritual life that has been entrusted to you. How? By working out what God is working in you. Verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Grumbling is no small matter particularly in the scriptures, the first generation of Israelites, they were prevented from entering the promised land. They were sentenced to 40 years of wandering and dying in the wilderness. Why? For grumbling. Psalm 95 identifies the decisive moment as occurring a couple of months into their journey. Along the way, they had been grumbling. And then in Exodus chapter 17, their grumbling against their leaders regarding their lack of food and water reached a fever pitch. Moses had already explained that in grumbling against him and against Aaron, they were really grumbling against God. And then God described their grumbling as a form of putting him to the test. For in their grumbling about their circumstances, God said they were really saying, is the Lord among us or not? Exodus 17, 7. You see, their grumbling was a symptom of their unbelief that God was at work among them. So too, our grumbling and arguing with one another is a symptom of unbelief that God is at work in and among us for his good pleasure. And Paul is saying that there is no place for grumbling within a church. It tears down rather than builds up. It divides rather than unites. And we must be united in order to be effective in the ministry God has given us. Together, we must be blameless and innocent, verse 15. Children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Paul is, is clearly drawing on the words from Moses, again, some of the last words of Moses, in Deuteronomy 32, verse 5, where Moses, in describing the Israelites, says this, they have dealt corruptly with the Lord. They are no longer his children, because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. Sin distorts. Sin perverts God's good design, but God is at work within his people to set us straight so that against the backdrop of a dark and crooked world, we might shine as lights in the world, or as the NIV translates it, like stars in the sky, dispelling the darkness around us and showing others the way. It's the picture of the gospel being proclaimed from lives to which the gospel has been applied. It's the picture of the call to submit to Jesus Christ as Lord coming from lives lived in submission to him as Lord. 
As Jesus taught his first disciples in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, you, my disciples, are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Work out the light that God is working in you diligently. Let your life be a light to a world shrouded in darkness. Well, how? Verse 16, by holding fast to the word of life. Hold fast to the gospel, no matter the cost. Know God's word. For it is through the word of God that we come to know Christ as Lord. And it is through his word that Christ rules over his people as Lord. Paul continues, So that in the day of Christ, meaning Christ's second advent, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, meaning in his ministry labors among them. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Notice that there there are two different sacrifices that he talks about in verse 17. There's the sacrificial offering of their faith, the faith of the Philippians, meaning that their ongoing obedience to Christ in the face of opposition, in the face of division, and probably especially their, their financial gift that they had sent to Paul to support him while he awaits trial. That's the sacrificial offering of their faith. But then there's Paul's own suffering and potential likely death for Christ, described as a drink offering poured out on top of their sacrifice for Christ. That's the imagery, two sacrifices, his and theirs. And this imagery of sacrifice and being poured out and spent for Christ brings him joy. For Christ is glorified when his people hold fast to him, no matter the cost. As you consider this charge to be the light of the world through sacrificial obedience to Jesus, maybe you look at the example of Jesus from the preceding verses in chapter 2 and think, yeah, but he was God in human flesh. And maybe you look at the example of Paul that he keeps pointing to from these verses and think, yeah, but he was an apostle, probably the greatest of all missionaries the world has ever known. I'm not God. I'm no apostle. Okay, well, how about two others' examples? Timothy and Epaphroditus. Looking at verse 19, we'll move through these remaining verses very quickly. So, as always, you need to have your your Bible open before you. Verse 19, I hope in the Lord Jesus, that is, Lord willing, I hope to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. That is, upon Timothy returning back to Paul with a good report of them standing firm in one spirit, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. As we put it earlier, that's what he wants to hear about them. We also read in, in 1 Corinthians and 1 Thessalonians of Timothy being sent to those churches to encourage them and to exhort them and then to bring back a report for Paul. That's what Timothy did. Verse 20, For I have no one like Timothy who will be genu- genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not the interests of Jesus Christ. Who's he referring to? But perhaps he's referring to those he mentioned in chapter 1 who, quote, preach Christ from envy and rivalry and out of selfish ambition and try to afflict Paul. But not Timothy. Timothy serves Christ. 
not himself. Verse 22. But you know Timothy's proven worth. Timothy was there with Paul when he planted the church. How as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord, again, Lord willing, I I trust that shortly I myself will come also. But in the meantime, with Paul still in chains, and with Timothy apparently being uniquely needed by Paul in Rome while he's in chains, Paul sending someone else to them. Verse 25, I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, my fellow worker, my fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. This is the very man that the Philippians had sent to Paul. So he's from the church in Philippi. He was sent to Paul to carry their financial gift to him and to, to otherwise stay with him to support his needs on their behalf. Now Paul is sending him back, likely carrying this very letter. Verse 26. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. What compassion. Think of it. To be distressed because others know that you are ill and are worried about you and your illness. And so your burden is for for their concern for you more than yourself. Verse 27, Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious." as less anxious, that is, in, in knowing that the Philippians are being well served by this fellow soldier for Christ. Verse 29, So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. So apparently Epaphroditus had become ill as a consequence of, of traveling to Rome and, and serving Paul there. But rather than abandoning the mission and returning home, he pressed on at the risk of his own life. And so, even though the Philippians would likely prefer to have Paul come to them or Timothy come to them, Epaphroditus is deserving of honor. And like Timothy, is a worthy example for us all. So we think about applying this part about Timothy and Epaphroditus, there's certainly application to be made in regard to the way that we support frontier missionaries today. But in light of the charge being given to the Philippians to be a light in Philippi, let's instead consider how we can support each other. As Timothy and Epaphroditus supported Paul in his need, let us support one another in our needs. At the very least, let's visit one another, especially those who are hindered from being able to gather with us in person in this season. And as Timothy and Epaphroditus served fellow Christians by keeping up with them and sharing news with them and sharing and taking to them the teachings of the apostles, do the same with one another through in-person visits, through phone calls, through texts. See from the example of Timothy and Epaphroditus the importance of this kind of ministry to one another. And never lose sight of the example of Christ who, unlike these men, did not merely risk his life for his people, but gave his life for us. He knowingly came to earth in his first advent for the very purpose of suffering and dying in our place on a Roman cross. And when he returns in his second advent, he will bring to completion the work that he has begun in all who have trusted in him for the forgiveness of their sins and have bent their knees in submission to him as their Lord. Let us pray.
Father, help us to think rightly about that baby who was born in a manger so many years ago, who humbled himself for us. Move us to work out the light that you are working in us. May our lives be a light to a world shrouded in darkness. Bless the preaching of your word in and for the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.